Good morning and welcome everybody. You're listening to Breakfast Show on Faith FM 87.6, 87.8 or 88 right across Australia, right across the Faith FM network. Wherever you are, Positively Different Radio in the morning and you're with Lyle and... Joelle, good morning everybody. Good morning Joelle, how are you this morning? I'm really good, it's a beautiful day outside and I'm excited to see what the day holds. Are you really good or are you better than really good? I'm just really good. Just really good? Yeah. Yeah. Not amazing, not fantastic. Really good's pretty good in my books. <laughs> okay, so really, really good is the same as fantastic then? Oh, probably not. Okay, oh, there you go. So she's not fantastic this morning, but she's really good. Really good. I am super thankful that you are really good. What are you thankful for this morning? I've just been doing some reflecting, um, especially just, you know, being co-hosting with you has been such a privilege. And I've just been reminded that God is willing to... Or God wants to use each one of us if we're just willing to be used. Um, and as a Bible worker, there are many times when I feel like, oh, I should know more about the Bible or I should be able to explain things like prophecy um, in simpler terms. And then once I reach that level, then I can be used by God. Then I'll be more effective. But I've realized that God just wants us to be willing to do the small things for him. And he will bless us in doing that. Absolutely. So that's been something I've just been thinking about. And I'm, I'm just so privileged um, to do what I do. That's fantastic, Joelle. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. I'm going to... That's a, that's a major contrast to what I was going to be thankful <laughs> for this morning. Um, but anyway, that's okay. I'm thankful for my log splitter this morning. Log splitter. Yes. I'm thankful for my log splitter. So it's like this. I, uh, I know an older gentleman who um, had a big pile of firewood that you would never split with any kind of blockbuster or axe ever made. And, of course, he and his, he and his uh, wife were kind of going cold, and my log splitter means that their wood is now split and they can stay warm for this winter. So I'm thankful for my log splitter and the opportunity to use it for others. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. Ah, well, before I dig myself any deeper into a hole, let's have some positively <laughs> different news. All right. Well, today I was trying to think of someone I know who doesn't like cake, but I couldn't think of a single person because I think most people enjoy cake. So I know some people who don't like fruit cake. Okay. You know, so and so maybe there's certain kinds of cake. That's true. I didn't think about fruit cake. I was just thinking of the normal. Just cake. Cake, cake. in general. Yeah. Surely there is nobody who doesn't like at least one kind of cake. That's what I was thinking. Well, today's story is about a bakery, so that got me thinking about that. Um, So obviously because of the um, coronavirus, um, many celebrations have been put on hold, like big milestones, like weddings and birthday parties. And um, obviously that's a big disappointment for many people who look forward to big celebrations like that. And they've had to adapt. Um, in terms of how they can celebrate that. So some people have virtual celebrations. I don't know if that does it justice. Um, Or some people just have quiet evenings at home with um, those close to them. Well, one bakery in... um, Oh, in the city of... Or state of Minnesota, they decided to make a custom cake for every high school graduate um, in this little town called Red Wing. So for every high school graduate at Red Wing High School, they were going to make custom cakes. um, That's a lot of cake. It's a lot of cakes. It was about 220 students, um, and they were going to do this for free. But it was so interesting how this decision came about. So this bakery, it's called Hannish Bakery and Coffee Shop. Um, The owner, Bill Hannish, he was just watching the news, um, and he was looking 
watching um, a briefing about the coronavirus pandemic. And the governor of Minnesota was just talking about what's happening and the lockdown and all that. And then during his speech, he talks about this neighborhood of Red Wing. And he just really had positive things to say about this little town. And um, the bakery owner, he was just so touched by the governor's um, kind words. And he thought, you know, what can I do um, just to give back to his own community? So he decided that he was going to bring some joy to high school students who were going to graduate um, from Red Wing High School. And I think, I think in countries outside of the United States, we don't realize just how big a deal high school graduations are in America. Yeah, they seem like a bigger deal over there. Oh, yeah, far bigger deal um, than you can even begin to imagine here in Australia. And Which a is real, cool, though. yeah, it is. It's 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 a it's a rite of passage that mm. young people go through. It's something that they look forward to, you know, kind of all the way through their school years because yeah. they're they're always looking up to those, you know, those who are graduating. It's like, wow, one day I will be there, and it's kind of one of those things that they sort of plan for, and yeah. and you know, you have this whole weekend of pomp and ceremony and celebration. And, of course, with, uh, you know, COVID comes around and that's just all gone. Yeah. I mean, I had uh, friends graduating from university in the United States and they've got their grad picks all by themselves. They're just oh. standing in front of a tree with like, yep, here's my, I'm going to put my, put my hat and robe on just <laughs> so that I can take a photo take a because picture. I graduated. Yeah. But, yeah, nothing happening and so uh, that's nice to see somebody doing something to actually make that special. Absolutely. So he actually went to this high school when he was younger. So it had special meaning for him. So after deciding on this, he dec- he contacted you know the cake decorators and he posted um, a message on Facebook just telling his neighborhood about the plan. So he went ahead and they did these about 200 cakes. And after he did the post on Facebook, someone from a neighboring town contacted him and said, hey, can you do this for our high school seniors? So um, he was like, yeah, sure. And again, he he did that. And then after that took place, another neighborhood contacted him about the same thing. Um, so this could this could get out of control. <laughs> so what ended up happening? He just um, was so flooded with people who were actually donating towards this cause. So people were giving money. Right. Okay. So that they, I was a bit worried for him there yeah, for a moment. But no, people are donating for now this. Now people are donating so that it enables him to help even more schools. And they've even started like personalizing the cakes. So some of the cakes have the students' um, names on it. The students can even choose their flavors. And if they don't, the cake. At least has the school colors on them so definitely um, making it as special as can be and he's made over 1,000 cakes um, and he's reached about 14 schools in 16 different towns that's That's, amazing you know what I love about this story because I do like it when people are you know show their ingenuity and in the middle of a crisis they turn a you know they turn lemons into lemonade Absolutely. You know, and they come along and it's like, okay, um, our business is is toast because of this, but yeah, maybe there's another angle here and then they actually cash in on the crisis. I appreciate that. I'd like more power to them. But what I like about this one is that here is somebody who didn't, wasn't actually looking for a way to cash in. Mm. He was looking for a way just to 
to make the world a better place yeah. and ended up cashing in. Yeah. How, how much better a story can you get than that? Amazing. But you mentioned in, um, ingenuity a minute ago, and I actually want to go to another story also about high school graduates. So they weren't able to, you know, walk across the stage like they normally do to get their high school diplomas. So these seniors at Somerset Island Prep um, Charter High School in Florida, they did not walk across the stage, but they crossed the open sea. So what they did right. is they had their cap, their gown, a life jacket, and a face mask, and they got on top of jet skis. So they rode right. on a jet ski, and they passed their principal, who was standing on a deck of a small boat, and the principal just, like, hands them um, their diploma on a makeshift um, tool. And they just ride past him and get their diploma. Okay, I think all school graduations should be like that. It would be so much more fun. It was. Uh, yeah, I saw get, the video. give me a chance so to um, to uh, create havoc on a jet ski while graduating, yeah. and I will definitely choose that. And method the principal every day. was saying that this um, final ceremony was really just a representation of um, encouraging the students that you can overcome anything um, through creativity and hard work. So yeah, there was a message. Um, through all of that at the end of it. That's fantastic. All right, let's be uh, always on our lookout for ways of turning lemons into lemonade. I think that is the moral of the story here. We find things that's like, oh, that's going to be pretty sad. That's going to hold us back. That's not going to be so much fun. But let's turn lemons into lemonade because, well, that's what Jesus specializes in doing and we are following the example of Jesus. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM, positively different. Well, I'm excited today to have uh, John Hammond on the phone, who is um, a master storyteller amongst many other skills that he has. Uh, John, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you very much, Lyle. Now, uh, I understand that you and I are kind of um, <clears throat> suffering through uh, scratchy throats at the same time, is that right? Yeah, I think we call it the lurgy. Everything's fine except my throat. <laughs> well, thank you for taking the time to uh, to come and join us on the throne on the phone and. Uh, I want to um, uh, just, yeah, we'll start off by talking about, you were just recently in Fiji, and um, yeah, maybe what you could share with us some stories of uh, your experience there. Yeah, well, we went over for a family holiday, uh, so we took the children and the grandchildren uh, so they could revisit where their parents grew up. Um, I was principal of Fulton College in Fiji. And uh, we spent four wonderful years there, so we just had a fantastic week. Yeah, um, and and loved it. That's fantastic. So when when you said you spent four years there at Fulton College, and just to, as an explanation to yeah, just to explain maybe to our listeners what Fulton College is, and uh, and and then share maybe what years you were there. Well, Fulton College has been going for many many years, about sixty years, seventy years, and. Uh, it's a uh, senior training college before uh, Pacific Adventist University, and it has continued, but uh, they've moved from the old campus just north of Suva to a beautiful new campus uh, near Nandi. Uh, but we visited the old campus because that's where our memories are. And uh, we had students from 19 different countries, so it was a most uh, culturally diverse oh. place. Mm. Is the old campus still being used? What's what's happening there now? 
It's very, very sad. It's not quite derelict, and, and in the tropics, of course, it'll go downhill very, very quickly. Mm, mm. So it, it was a walk down memory lane, but, but rather rather sad. Sure. And what years were you in? Were you living in Fiji? Uh, 1982 to the end of 1985. Right. I was the youngest principal they've ever had there. Oh, wow. Congratulations. That's a, um, yeah. definitely an achievement there. Now, John, you had a, a, a long life involved in education. Um, <clears throat> where did that all begin? Well, it started, I guess, um, when my parents went to Malaya in 1949. Um, that's when um, my dad was a doctor. And he was, he's asked to go to Penang and Malaya at a time when, uh, the communist terrorist emergency war had just started. And, uh, there were a lot of snakes. People were dying. They were, uh, the infrastructure had broken down after the war. And, uh, the day we arrived, we, uh, opened the door in the morning and trod on the back of a 13 foot hammer drive or King Cobra. Oh. And we'd only only been there 12 hours, and he slammed the door shut so fast he nearly left his foot outside. (laughs) And he came in, and he announced to my mother, don't unpack a single bag. We're going home tomorrow morning. (laughs) And there was a flight going down to Singapore, and so we sat down. That was one of my earliest memories of my dad sitting at breakfast with his hands shaking, and uh, he wasn't someone who was readily spooked. And uh, he then rather dramatically announced that we're going to test God on this one. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said, we're going to pray. And I'm going to get my Bible. And I've got it here with me. And he said, I'm going to just open the Bible anywhere. And I'm just going to shove my thumb in. And if there's not a message under my thumb, we'll go home. Talk about throwing down the gauntlet. Yeah, that's a uh, that's that's really um, that's really throwing it down right there. It's a pretty risky thing to do. Mm-hmm. Well, he did that, and when he lifted his thumb, he read a text that has become our family favourite. He'd never read it before. It was Luke, Luke chapter ten, verse nineteen. Behold, I give unto you power to tread on snakes and scorpions. And over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. And he turned to my mum and said, I think we've got to stay. <laughs> and so, stay we did for 12 years. We killed 12 cobras in the bathroom alone. Ooh. And uh, uh, he saved the life of the senior communist terrorists without realizing it. Um, when every European head was first $5,000 attached or otherwise. And the day before we left the country, uh, God just opened the window of heaven just a crack because we had a knock on the door, the war was finished, and there was a Chinese man, and he asked if he could come in, and he had a piece of paper. Now, they had our photograph, the photograph of our car, our address, and uh, the number plate of the car, and uh, I looked at it. I could read, read Malay, and there was a, a message in Malay and Chinese, and it simply said, this is the Hammond family, and uh, this is an order of protection. 
under no circumstances is this family ever to be harmed. And uh, it was signed by this man, and uh, we just realized that God had protected us. When we lived there, when the, the governor of the country, Sir Henry Gurney, was assassinated, and they're moving all Europeans out, but my dad stuck there. And mm. so I determined, as I was growing up, that whatever I did, I was going to work for church. Mm. Mm. The problem was my two brothers did brilliantly, um, but I didn't. Uh, <laughs> I, I was a classic, classic middle child. Uh, if, you, if you want to learn true humility, you let your younger brother finish school several years ahead of you. Um, and that I, I started doing secondary teaching and I bombed out of that. Um, I had a grade point average of about zero. <laughs> and uh, the only option left was primary teaching. And I used to despise primary teachers. We call them primary screechers. <laughs> so I, I, I humbly lined up and registered. And in those days, it was a low-grade course, and you had to teach a class within three weeks of starting. This is at Avondale College um, 51 years ago. Mm -hmm. And the day I taught my first lesson, the lights just came on. Right. And I ran out of that classroom exulting, and I knew why God had led me through all those horrible years of failing uh, he was something I could do, and I, I, uh, I can look into a child's eyes and see the panic when they are not learning. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I was a primary teacher. My first job was to open the Central Coast School at Erin, New South Wales. We had 18 kids, so I think it's got about 900 now. Wow. Um, and so the Lord led me. Uh, I did eventually become a high school teacher. And then I lectured at the college and then went out to Fiji. And then I was principal of uh, Longburn College uh, before becoming national director of Adventist schools for the last 13 years of my career. That's and, um, that, that's uh, a, been, yeah. Yeah. I've been retired now for, for nine years. That's a truly sensational story, John, because it's, it, it, it's evidence of the hand of God. Mm. You know, from the very beginning, where you know you you, you tell that story of you, your dad telling treading on a snake, and then such a dramatic answer to prayer. Yeah, uh, followed, what, sorry, God, God rattles your cage now and again mm -hmm. <laughs> because uh, nearly twelve years ago I broke my neck and my back, mm. and I wasn't expected to live, and I was in a long, long coma. But the day I woke up, God spoke to me. Mm -hmm. And nobody in this wide world can convince me that God didn't speak to me. And he simply said, your work is not yet finished. Mm. And that's why I'm racing all over the world, uh, preaching the gospel, um, because God has given me a commission. I mean, how blessed am I after being given up for dead, waking up out of a coma, and then God telling me my work is not yet done. And he'll do that for anybody. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. But sometimes you've got to go to the bottom of the pool and kick hard because God's waiting to drag you out. And no matter what your state in life, God's got to work for you. Absolutely. John, you mentioned you mentioned starting off as a primary school teacher. 
and becoming yeah. passionate about primary school teaching, but then going on to, you know, being uh, you know directors of colleges and universities and you know, education director for you know the whole of the South Pacific in the Adventist Church. Um, which are very responsible positions. Do you still have a passion, that original passion for for working with the with the young children? Well, yes. Um, I hope my ex bosses aren't listening to this, but over my time, I've taken 110 weeks of prayer. Now that's a big <sighs> chunk out of your working life. Mm. But what I would do when I go into a school, I never wanted to lose my hand at being a teacher. Mm-hmm. I would speak to the students twice a day, but then I would teach for that week as well. So that was my uh, yearly sabbatical several times a year to take a week of prayer. Mm-hmm. And it is the most wonderful experience. I'm, I'm addicted to talking to students, whether they're five years old, 15 or 50. Now, John, um, some of our listeners might not know this, but uh, you are known uh, around the world as being a master storyteller when it comes to children. What is it that motivates you to be a, 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 a storyteller um, with, with, with kids? That's a question I was dying for you to ask. <laughs> uh, well, um, if you want somebody to remember a sermon, tell a story. And if you look at the way Christ taught, he simply told stories. Mm. And the stories will stick. And you you can be five or you can be 105. You will always remember stories. When people come back to me and they say, I remember that sermon you took. It's not the details. It's not the 15 points that you want to get across. It's the story. And I always believe in never laboring the point. People are smart enough to pick up the point in the story. Mm. And uh, I take yearly lectures up at the college because people just have forgotten the art of telling stories. Mm, mm. And I can testify to the truth of that because both Shell and myself can remember um, quite clearly some of the stories that you were telling at uh, Tasmania Big Camp this year to a group of children. And all the kids were heading over there for story time, and Shell and I were heading over there for story time as well. <laughs> so that was um, yeah, fantastic. It's, it's amazing when you see some 45-year-old uh, juniors. Uh, <laughs> and, yeah, walk into but, story time um, and sit down and start listening. Storytelling so easy, but it is something you have to work out. You've got to practice it. What's your, what's your number one tip for telling stories? Um, you, or my my view is particularly the uh, say a twelve or thirteen year old. You've got forty five seconds. You can be the most boring creature in the world, and they'll give you forty five seconds before they distract. You've got to absolutely hook them in that first forty five seconds. Mm-hmm. So focus on that, and then yeah, and, and so it's got to be something that's engaging. Um, and uh, I can remember when I was a speaker at the Camperee in, in Wakery in South Australia, and there were 3,000 kids on a hot night, and the band had whipped them up. I was saying, Lord, you've just got to help me, and he did. He calmed those people down because I just launched straight into a story, and they're waiting for the next word, and, and uh, I would have to say that God has given me that gift and, and given me the opportunity to hone it 
I I sit and listen to many sermons, and sometimes I've got to concentrate. I concentrate so hard I go into a form of meditation called sleep. Um, <laughs> and uh, you've really got to engage the kids, and the story's got to flow. Um, young people, old people, and it's a story of salvation. Look, you can tell Bible stories over and over and over again, and they'll love it. Mm. But if I have a hobby, is I get into a Bible study, and I'll research it and research it, and get the background because we tend to tell the same story over and over again in the same way that we heard it the first time. Uh, there is no excuse for not approaching a Bible story in a fresh way. Mm. Yeah, that's that's fantastic, John. You're listening to the Breakfast Show podcast on Faith FM, positively different. Okay, um, question of the day. Okay, question of the day. I got really excited there. Um, all right, so question of the day. One of the things that I really want to do in my lifetime is either swim with wild dolphins or whales. But I just don't know if I'm actually going to get that opportunity and I'm a little afraid of sharks. So in case I can't do that anytime um, soon, will I be able to do that um, throughout eternity? But um, Revelation 21 verse 1 says something. Um, it says, Now I saw a new uh, new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth have passed away also there was no more sea so if there's no more sea or ocean does that mean there are no more sea creatures okay this is a really really interesting question what does that mean are all surfers going to be just devastated when they get to heaven <laughs> along with Joel who wants to swim with Wild dolphins and wild whales. Maybe somebody needs to uh, sponsor Joelle <laughs> to go somewhere where she can swim with, swim with wild dolphins. I know there are a number of locations in Australia where you can do that. Swimming with wild whales is a little bit more challenging. Mm. But will that be possible in the new earth? The Bible says there is no sea in the new earth. Right, let me comment on that for a moment. The Bible does say there's no sea in the new earth. That does not mean that there will not be any bodies of water. Okay. So if you look at the world before the time of the flood, the world, the antediluvian world, there is no mention of any sea or oceans. Mm-hmm. I think, what is it, three-quarters of our world at the moment, thereabouts, is covered by water. Uh, before the flood, let's say that you reverse that equation and then three-quarters of the world is land rather than sea. And, of course, we know this was the case from the fossil record as well that we find at the bottom of you know the oceans and so forth. So let's say we reverse the equation, and now three-quarters of the world is land rather than water. A quarter of the world being water is still a lot of water, isn't it? Hmm. But what it does do is it does take away the vast, empty oceans. Right. Which are just massive, enormous areas of kind of nothing. Hmm. You've been sailing and just, you know, gone on an actual voyage, like blue water voyage. I've done a few blue water voyages. And when you're a long way from land and you're on just a little itty-bitty yacht that's 40 feet long and you haven't seen the land for a long time, the ocean feels kind of big and kind of empty. 
And I guess what I'm saying is this. Let's say that you take something like the Mediterranean and cut it off at Gibraltar. It goes from being the Mediterranean Sea to the Mediterranean Lake, doesn't it? Yeah. Is that big enough for you, Joel? No. The Mediterranean's not big enough? You want something bigger than the Mediterranean? Have you been to the Mediterranean? I don't, I'm trying to think. It's, it's, it's kind of big. It's a lot of countries on the Mediterranean. I can't even number how many countries there are. Let's go France, Italy, um, I think Slovakia, uh, Croatia, um, Greece, Albania, um, Turkey, Syria, Lebanon, Israel. And that's just around the northern side. And then you've got all the African ones on the other side. That's a big area of ocean. There will be large areas of water. There will be all of the same sea creatures that we have now and more and many of the species that have been lost. So good things to look forward to.